Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. Is oral delights show number one hundred? Two hundred. Crime City Central, featuring tales to terror. Four hundred. Integrity and protecting Project Home, and the all new five hundred. Hello and welcome to Starship Echoes, a little look back into the archives of Starship Sova, digging out and picking out some of them gems of a bygone age where you might not have heard it or nice just a little refresh. Today we're going to play an interview I carried out with legends of the science fiction firmament, Jerry Pennell, Greg Benford and Mr Larry Niven. And this is a great interview, you know what I mean, it was just... Three giants just, you know, they've achieved every, everything they want, you know what I mean? There's, there's nothing really, they're just enjoying their life and unfortunately we've lost Jerry Purnell just, I think it was this year. So this is a great little look back at this this wonderful interview to be quite honest. I was just, I think I was rather relaxed, you know, I think there might have been a few little sherries knocking around on my desk when I interviewed these guys. So let's go back and have a little listen to a younger Mr Smith. Talking to Jerry Purnell, Greg Benford, and Larry Niven. Welcome everyone to the audio version of an audience with science fiction legends Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell, and Gregory Benford. This was a live video webcast that was recorded on the 21st of April 2013 at 1800 British Summer Time. I was very delighted to get these guys on board, and what you're about to hear is the audio version of that webinar. So, Larry, then, you know when, I mean, you've probably been asked these questions all before, but did you always want to be a, a kind of science fiction writer, or was it just a, a writer in general, or? I always did. My first attempt at fiction was a, and it was a very short Oz 
story, Wizard of Oz story. But it, it it was, you know, you kind of you grew up reading science fiction, and you thought that's that's where I'm going to nail my kind of colours to the mast. That's what I want to be a science fiction writer. Uh, that is what I wanted. Yes, and that's what you are. My family, <laughs> my family told me I should find a profession and and use the <laughs> science fiction as a hobby. And and it, that that's not an irrational thing to suggest. No, no. great guy. <laughs> Sorry, wrong word. Uh, Wolf, Gene Wolf, wrote a wonderful defense of uh, keeping your day job. Did you I, did you want to keep a, a day job, Larry, or were you just really thinking? Were you hell bent on being a science fiction writer? I Tony, you've got to understand something. Larry doesn't need a day job. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Well, I was born with, with a trust fund. Well, I was being quite, you know, subtle and you can kind of be nice about it. I was just... It, There's no bloody subtlety about it. He doesn't need the money from writing. It's a score. <laughs> that it's must a be way money. of keeping score of whether I'm a successful human being. Well, there you go. Uh, yes. I, I want the money to keep score. Well, And I want the audience said- to keep score. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll give you one more detail. When he said that he, that that his family suggested that he learn a business, what they meant was the oil business, and they bought him a filling station so he could learn from the bottom up by owning a filling station. Does this give you some notion of what's going on here? That's close. Uh, my step grandfather's suggested he buy me a fill- filling station to run, so that. W- at any given social event, if somebody asked me what I did for a living, I could name name running a filling station. It, well, uh, I rejected this. I was going to say, Jerry, did you did you ever step into that kind of business side of things, or did you just not go there at all? Uh, you're talking to Jerry. I'm talking to you, Larry. Did you ever have? Oh, sorry. To, did you ever step into that? You know, into the family business at any time for any length of period, or did you not go uh, there at all? Yes, I did. For about two months, one summer, I worked for a gas station. I worked <laughs> at a gas station. Uh, we all do that. All Doheny's work at a, work at a gas station at some time during their early lives. Uh, all all the males, that is. It's not an option. Greg, what about you then, Greg? How did, you know, your upbringing and, and getting it into science fiction? Uh, no, I always wanted to be a physicist, and my, but my first work of fiction was my first tax return. <laughs> <laughs> and I continue in that genre. So, don't we all? Yes, yes. In some ways, it's the best. Jerry, then, what, what about you then? Are you... I'm guessing your loves the kind of the, the technical writing technology side of it, and is maybe science fiction a, a bolt on, like an add-on to your to your repertoire, or is science fiction your main love first? It's the only way I make a living. But I well, watch Jerry. Not just science fiction. I write science as well, but. You must understand. I didn't want to be a writer for a living. I wanted to be mayor of Luna City. <laughs> I watched Jerry carve a uh, carve a living out of a, out of no space, as if he had created a new universe. I'm talking about uh, the users column for Byte Magazine. There there weren't any there weren't anyone writing uh, 
for the users of science, of uh, of computers until Jerry uh, created it. Jerry is. I mean, I was mentioning it when we had like a little practice, you know, a while ago. That I seen you talk about. I think it was um, the e-books, and this was thirty, well, nineteen seventy-nine. You must be a proud guy to look back and say, "I got that right." No, I feel like a profoundly stupid guy because I thought of all these things, but I didn't make any money out of them except about writing about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, at the time, though, because like you say, 1979, you basically predicted e-books, you know, and it's on, yes. it's on YouTube there, so it's, it's there in all your glory. Did, how did you come to predict that? You know, there must have been kind of the technology must have been there or nearly there available at that time. It's just 1979 for me was a little bit, you know, I was born in 1966, so it's, I was still playing around and playing outside <laughs> then. Well, of course, the technology was there by 1979. Um, we have, have you read Oath of Fealty? Have I read, sorry, what? There's this book that was written by two guys named Larry Niven and Jerry Fresnel. It's called Oath of Fealty. And it's about essentially a modern technological city that uses what we thought the computer technology would be like in 30 years from 1979. That's about when we were writing it. We weren't dead accurate. We got we got most of it, but not the technology. We got the effects. We had, um, for instance, we didn't see iPhones and Facebook coming, but we did see essentially universal communications. So, Jerry, then, can you explain why, you know, the, you and Larry, why are you so different, techno, you know, for the, the tech side of things? Why does Larry, to be nice about it, kind of struggle sometimes with the technical side of things, where you, it just seems to kind of happen and you know what you're doing and everything? You've got that right. I do struggle <laughs> with technology. Why is that, Larry? Uh, I flinch from learning how to use my cell phone. Why? Why do you think that is? You know what I mean? Because like you see, you're you're writing some of the kind of the best science fiction out there, and yet you know, switching on the computer and, and learning little programs, it seems to kind of. A bit it's of a not thing. a new thing. Let me point out that the most technologically qualified guy in the room is Greg Benford, and he's sitting there with a microphone that's too soft <laughs> and a bright light behind his head. I know. <laughs> I thought you might like to look at the sunshine. Do you remember where this guy is? <laughs> uh, yes, I'm in Northern England. Yes, is, uh, he's in Yorkshire. We had we had one bright day yesterday, so that was you know we all kind of everyone ran outside and kind of rejoiced in this one bright day. Right, Larry. You never saw one of those fine mornings in England when it didn't rain by noon, though. You no, know, we. Um, it's been the it's truth been, is. Most science fiction writers don't don't want to know too many details about how a machine works, uh, unless they're they're working right in the uh, immediate future. And writing in the in the immediate future is the hardest thing you can do. So most of us reach way out there, and we don't want to know uh, exact details of how a bizarre ramjet works. Uh, if a bizarre ramjet were were a real thing, 
uh, we need to reach for the daydream. It makes better fiction. It's better. It's better than yes, yeah, switch, switching on Skype and trying to work out Skype. Now, Larry, well, yeah. this is what I want to kind of talk about because when we had a little chat last time, the news broke that Ringworld was being optioned for a TV, a four a four program TV rights. Now. When we spoke last time, you, you didn't seem to be kind of that um, excited about it. Now, after we kind of we said goodbye, I kind of had a little talk with people outside on the internet, and everybody I spoke to seemed really pleased that it was going to be like a TV instead of a, a blockbuster film. They just, you know, and everyone I spoke to says they were quite happy for the TV because there was room to kind of let the characters develop, room for concepts to be kind of fulfilled, where within a film, you've only got that, say, two hours. So I'm just wondering now what it's like for you now. Are you, have you changed your mind? Are you, are you still wanting here's, the, the here's blockbuster? Here's the situation. Uh, the Sci-Fi Channel has announced they're going to do the do Ringworld as a four-hour uh, miniseries. The thing is, they did that nine years ago too, and then changed their minds. So some of the excitement uh, has a dubious flavor to it. Also, they haven't contacted me. If they wanted to make it a miniseries, you'd think they'd want the publicity. If they wanted the publicity, you'd think they'd have called me by now. Actually, you're, uh, so, yeah, you're, you're, you're quite right there. You'd think at least they would do a courtesy call just to say even we're putting out some press releases. So yeah. they, haven't even, they haven't even been you in touch. You don't understand. You do not understand the TV business. They're not calling him because they don't have to. Uh, there's been no trace of courtesy. That's, that's shocking. So Jerry, why... And in fact, you would be hard-pressed to find any courtesy in this town. So surely, though, they've got, to, they've got to have Larry's, and I'm asking you, Jerry, surely they've got to have Larry's say-so if they can go ahead with this project. No, that, no, they don't. He does, no, they don't. I sold he doesn't own rights. the rights. Yeah. Right. I sold certain rights many years ago, 26, 28, uh, call it 30 years ago by now. Uh, I he sold, would I make a I sale sold by an editor rights. who pretended to be a friend. Yeah, that's about the size. That's right, part of it, right. part of it, and part of it is, I should not have uh, signed certain contracts. He hadn't uh, met me when he signed that stupid contract. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm guessing then, Jerry, you wouldn't have let him do that, eh? I would not have let him do that. I would have committed seppuku on the front steps of his house before I would let him do that. So this is probably true. <laughs> So, I mean, it's a, it must be a, a bit of a hard subject then, Larry, you know, to kind of, how do you, how do you feel personally about it? It is as, it is as irritating as I want it to be. <laughs> I, w- I would have driven myself nuts if I thought about it long, long and hard enough. So I don't. Uh, if they make that movie, I'm going to be in love with it. Uh, I, w- I will announce it to all my family. <laughs> And I hmm. wish they had done the damn thing on time. If if they hadn't hesitated 26 years before I actually did something to, to jog them, uh, my mother would have been able to watch that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what I really wanted. Greg, but now the special effects will be better. The special effects will be wonderful. 
I can count on that. Greg, what would God you God knows every artist in the field has, has tried to do, do the ring world. Mm -hmm. I, I spoke too much too strongly there. Uh, many of the best writers, many of the best artists in the field have done a ring world uh, treatment. Some of them had even heard of Ringworld when they did it. Well, Greg, what would you feel? I don't feel know like? what you mean by that, Jared. Most <laughs> what of I mean Ringworld by that is that the Ringworld got so generic that there are a lot of people who use Ringworlds in their art without knowing where it ever came from because they don't read books. I see. Uh, hey, well, After all, it hasn't yeah, been a movie yeah. yet, so it can't be real to a certain uh, a fair number of so-called artists in this country. Uh, if it has never been on the screen, then it wasn't real in the first place, was it? <laughs> so the first chaos. thing they ever saw that looked like a ring world is, from their point of view, the source of the idea. They never heard of Larry Niven. It's actually quite uh, I have a lot of artists who have, too. So. I haven't had a lot of contact with people who don't know they're drawing a ring world. Uh, I expect Jerry has just noticed it happening. Uh, I haven't seen much of it except, except, of course, for Halo, which is a highly successful uh, game based on not the ring world, but a sort of a ring world. Uh, a poor man's ring world. Yeah, but that poor man's ring world is the major source of most people's information as to what a ring world is, unless they read the book. All true. It's a fact, mind, because my you know eleven-year-old son knows ring worlds, but knows ring worlds from Halo instead of Larry, which is probably my fault. After all, I I let a couple of friends borrow the ring world. Harry Harrison put a ring world in Star Smashers of the Galaxy Rangers. Uh, and he put it in just for, just for one of a series of jokes. Uh, and he had a point. Uh, if you're going to stop population explosion, uh, you might, uh, you're just as well stopping it now as you are stop stopping with a ring world. Because he had his characters settling one part of a ring world and then expanding their population around to here to the other side where uh, and now now they're fighting a, an interstellar war uh for control of of small plots of land on the ring world it was very funny Greg, what, how would you feel then with, with Timescape and, and the treatment? I'm, I'm hoping then you, you haven't signed any kind of contracts 30 years ago about that book. And, you know, how would you feel about a film or a TV series? Well, at the moment, it's uh, not owned by anybody. I'm working with a screenwriter in London uh, with the goal of either making a miniseries or a two-hour movie, depending on who's interested uh, and I'd like to work on it uh, on the script. In fact, I will work on the script myself if it ever takes off the ground. But I've been through this so many times that, like Larry and Jerry, uh, I don't get too excited about it. Uh, there's no reason to get your pulse rate up on the nth try. Yeah. 
It You'd be astonished at how much money we have made in options on various books, particularly <laughs> Moat and God's Eye. They can't pay you money for an option, but then something happens and they don't get the financing to do the movie. So after a while, you just wait till the checks clear the bank before you celebrate much. <laughs> I do have yeah. some hope for the uh, sci-fi version of Ringworld. Uh, because we changed the uh, terms of the contract and spent a lot of work on, on a new set of contracts. Uh, and sci-fi is working from there. Uh, I believe that they will get it done this time. Would, Larry, would you like to be involved with it personally? You know, like actually being taken down to the set and, you know, to have a look around and, you know, being a bit of an advisor? Or are you quite happy just to let them get on with it and, you know... The money's in the bank. I would like to be a sort of advisor if anyone were, were, were willing to listen to me, and I'd like to participate. In, I've, been on the, uh, I've been on the set of a uh, version of Land of the Lost many years ago because I had helped write the script. Uh, I'd like to do that again. Jerry, what about you? part of any deal. What about you, Jerry? What? Would you be involved in? Would you like to get yourself involved in it if anything of yours was optioned, or are you quite happy well, to let it go? Mr. Cameron paid me a huge option for one of my novels, and it was going to be his next movie. But then, unfortunately, he, unfortunately for me, not for him, he did that Avatar picture of his with as instead of instead of uh, Birth of Fire. So, um, but Cameron, unlike most Hollywood people, knows exactly what he's doing. He was more familiar with some of my stories than I was when I was talking to him about it. Do you think but it must? It must have to Cameron, help. Cameron was Cameron was going to do Ringworld, but he couldn't. But uh, he Larry didn't own the book. Had Cameron done Ringworld, Larry would have been on the set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cameron likes talking to science fiction writers, and I believe Cameron is a genius because I watched him talking to Jerry. He was uh, he was on top of every subject that Jerry considers interesting. Uh, the guy is very bright. That was very remarkable, bright. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want Jerry? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Then what happened there? Um. Well, it's kind of a funny story. A few years ago, Larry and I were at American Association for the Advancement of Science meetings, and this was back when the Alvarez had just discovered that uh, a big asteroid impact had had a was real and it's what killed the dinosaurs or had a had an effect on killing the dinosaurs, and the Alvarez was kind enough to give Niven and me credit for having thought of it before he did, in a sense. So he said in a, in a big meeting, he said, oh, that's, that's, that's them. That's the guys who came up with the idea for the, for, for the, for the, for the, um, These are the guys who killed the dinosaurs is what yeah. you said, wasn't it, Jerry? That's I said something of that sort. Well, it happened that Mr. Cameron was on the next panel, which was about something else. And uh, at the end of it, uh, we got to talking, and he said, you know, he'd been thinking about making a Mars movie, 
because Mars was the topic he was talking about. And I said, you know, I have a novel that has it might make a Mars movie. And he said, oh, yes, I read it 20 years ago. And he got thinking about it. And he said, uh, let, 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 here, here's my home number. So he's giving me his telephone number and 18,000 people are sitting there trying to listen to it to find out what his whole number was because they all wanted to call him. And he says, give me a call. Let's talk about it. And the next thing you know, he has bought the thing for a, a quite significant amount of money for the, the, um, the option and a lot more if he had made the movie. And then Niven and I went down to his office to talk to him a couple of times, and he he knows more about our stuff than we do. He grew up reading these things, and he's read them all. It's the only major movie guy I know of who really likes science fiction. Last time I saw well, not last time I saw him, but uh, he, he was, for instance, out at the launch of the of the X-Prize out in, in Mojave Desert. You didn't see very many movie TV, movie and TV people out in Mojave when Bert Rutan was flying his, his Spaceship One. But there was Cameron. So, Jerry, do you still keep in touch with him? With who? With Cameron. Cameron. Oh, minimally, he's a very busy man. Everybody yeah. in the world wants to talk to him. I have and not we are not the same age, you know. I mean, he, he has a social life that is not mine, so not not a lot, I guess is the right way to put it. I still have his phone number. <laughs> I'm sure he would take a call if I called him. Do you, do you never fancy just giving him a phone and just saying, you know, I... What for? I mean, I don't bother people. It, I don't annoy people just to be able to say yeah. I have done that. I did that to Robert Heinlein once. Just felt like calling him, so I did. And it became clear to me he was very polite, but it was clear to me you don't do that. Yes. Robert, on the other hand, didn't mind doing it. He understood that he was the senior man, and if he wanted to annoy you, that was his prerogative. Uh, yes. About a week before he died, my telephone rang about 8.30 in the evening, and I answered it, and he said, Hi, this is Robert Heinlein. I said, Yes, sir. And he said, You got a minute? And I Well, yes, sir, of course I've got a minute. He said, well, I, we had a bottle of champagne after dinner, and Jenny didn't want but one glass, and of course it doesn't keep, so I, I finished the bottle. And I'm feeling pretty good. He said, I've been making a list of people who'd be better dead. You want to help me write on it? So uh, we spent an hour talking about people who'd be better dead, but I will not tell you who was on the list. Proxmire, I'll bet. <laughs> uh, I think Proxmire may have already been dead, but no, I don't know. You, certainly he would be on that list. The the first name on it, though, I suspect you can guess. It's somebody we used to know who is no longer with us, but we, we did know at one time, but I will not, I won't say it publicly. The, uh, the story I wrote about Robert Heinlein was called The Return of William Proxmire. Yes. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> yes. Wrote it for an anthology of mine. <laughs> yeah. 
Greg, let's change the subject a little bit. You know, you're kind of you're known, all he's known for hard science fiction writer. Do, do you ever kind of, or do you like reading stories that kind of skirt science fiction, like the kind of the technical side, and bring in? You know, I'm talking about more probably Bradbury style writing. Do you know? Do, do you quite enjoy fiction, uh, fiction like that? Style writing. Uh, yeah, I. When I first ran across Bradbury, I thought he was highfalutin, and I didn't really know what the word meant. But uh, but he he was a bit too poetic as a science fiction writer. I later came to realize the guy's a, the guy was a fantasy writer, not a science fiction. Writer. Yes, he wrote fantasy when fantasy yeah. was the the younger brother, the younger sister of science fiction. And uh, I came to like it very much. Bradbury. Now, of course, fantasy is the big, great, you know, Aunt Matilda, that that the 800-pound the, the, the gorilla, and science fiction is back in the gutter where it belongs. But mm-hmm. Yes. It's still in the colleges. Well, that's even worse, isn't it? Yes. As long as you get both. Sometimes I think that's a bad, a bad sign for the future. Um, yes, but remember the past. If you think that that's a, that's a bad sign, it, it was a bad sign for the past that nobody was reading science fiction or fantasy, and all and considered it uh, considered both to be ridiculous. And there wasn't anything called horror. It just happened in the fantasy realm. Yes, uh, we were. We have a lot more cachet these days, even if it's peculiar. Uh, the the science fiction com- community likes the movies and don't understand the science, but right. at least we're there. And of course, the the first so-called the first. The first science fiction novel, I mean, really science fiction in the sense of we may, we think of as science fiction and, in fact, was a hard science fiction novel, was uh, Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein. And, of course, Hollywood turned that into a horror movie, didn't they? But she oh, yes. thought she was writing hard science fiction and did a pretty dang good job of it, too, given the yes. time and place. Yeah. Jerry... Have you got? She a- must have been a remarkable woman. I yes. Sort of wish I had met her. Jerry, have you got well, a certain you'd be dead time? By in- now if you'd met her. Oh yeah. <laughs> have you got Thank a certain pardon? time, Jerry? You'd have you be got a dead certain- by now if you'd met Mary Shelley? <laughs> well, that's probably true. Although there are people who accuse me of having met her already. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, is there a certain time? In the kind of the past, in the say the seventies or the sixties, when you kind of when science fiction uh, was at its peak, and you really enjoyed it, and has it gone downhill now? Was there a certain time that you loved? Was it the sixties, the fifties, or? Well, I I was in high school during the grade school and high school during the golden age, and I liked all those things. I thought L. Ron Hubbard was the greatest novelist in the world when I was a young guy. I thought he was better than Heinlein. Um, but that was high school. I began to realize the difference between 
science fiction fantasy, and I guess what you would have to call science fantasy somewhere along the line. But I didn't set out to be a science fiction writer. I set out, as I say, I wanted to be mayor of Luna City. And in fact, I realized one of my objectives in life, I was the science mission planner for Apollo 18. You will protest that there was no Apollo 18, to which I will say yes, which is why I became a professor at Pepperdine University, but that's another story entirely. And I didn't like academic life. Unlike Greg, I wanted a way out of it, and science fiction looked to me like the the right way to um, the right way to get um, out of the academic business, and it was something that made money. So, why didn't you like the University of California system with, uh, with 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 its salary structure? Why didn't you like the academic side then, Johnny? Science fiction has been has been improving every year. Gets better every year, right. in my experience. You you might think that that my opinion is colored by the fact that I haven't won a an award since 1975. Uh, the competition has just gotten better. Right. That's okay. really, that's really quite refreshing. That. I'd kind of dispute that because I don't think that what's getting the awards is the best science fiction, but that's something else again. I agree. Would you like to explain then, Greg? No. Oh, uh, no. Unfortunately, the major prizes like the Hugo and the Nebula, which once had significant business impact and could increase your sales substantially by winning them, uh, that's gone away. Instead, the, the awards are completely disregarded by publishing and apparently by readers, too. Uh, and largely, I think, it, it's been captured by various interest groups and the most significant books of the year are almost never on the ballot. Yeah. Charlie Sheffield, who made no attempt to be politically correct, once said that uh, Hugo's were the Special Olympics of the, of the science fiction trade. Uh, I, I will... Immodestly argue that Nevin and I had made more had more impact on the science fiction world than most because we got this enormous advance for Lucifer's Hammer, and unlike some people who, having got into mainstream publishing with a lot of money, immediately shed the the Appalachian science fiction writer and became just authors, uh, we stayed science fiction writers. Yeah, and, I never and, pretended to be anything else. And you kept that, showing up on the bestseller list. And we kept uh -huh. and we kept showing up on the bestseller list, including Oath of Fealty, which is certainly science fiction. People say, well, Lucifer Hammer wasn't really science fiction. It was a disaster novel. And I said, all right, fine. Now, would you say that about Footfall, in which we have two trunked <laughs> aliens, the elephant aliens? Uh, yeah. Is that not science fiction? Would you concede that might be science fiction? Uh, Footfall is easy to, to defend as science fiction. <laughs> yeah. 
Elsa Fealty was a projection of technology. You could say that it was a techno thriller rather than science fiction, and and the case might be made. But as you pointed out, Tony, we did in that one uh, predict electronic books in 1979. So there exactly, might have been a science fiction element in there. But things haven't changed. Larry and I were on the bestseller list last year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are we talking? You're ball? first, Greg. Are we talking ball of he- heaven here, Greg? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Oh, I'm yes, ball of heaven. Ball of heaven. Yeah. And boy, you can't say that ain't science fiction. It's not really <laughs> fantasy either. <laughs> yeah, that's that's far out. That's far out. <laughs> you uh, know, we reached as far as we could go with that one. It's Larry. I would like you know when we're talking about ball of heaven there. Then why? Collaborate, full stop. Why? Why not take all the glory? Ah, I don't want all the glory. I want to be able to. I want a conversation. That's what I want. I want to be able to talk about the wonderful ideas in our heads. Uh, I've, uh, for me, writing has always been a collaboration between me and a million, a million readers. Uh, I have this imaginary reader who. It thinks a lot like I do and has the same interests, but uh, needs explaining, needs explanations. Uh, there seem to be a lot of people like that out there. I was lucky that the uh, science fiction community resembled what was in my head. Now, the whole SF community is a conversation. Yes. Un- unlike other genres. Uh-huh. Greg and I have had a conversation going for uh, for decades now that started with me, for instance, writing uh, writing of stage trees, organically grown solid solid fuel rockets. Uh, he went one. Greg went one further with a uh, with with a non synchronous orbital rotating skyhook, uh, organically grown, and I forgot the title of the book, Greg. Uh, but yeah, he was. I I jumped beyond him. What it, what was it, Greg? Uh, it was uh, beyond infinity. Is the definitive okay. use of that idea? To infinity okay. and beyond. <laughs> That's and right. I jumped beyond him with a with a, a full a, a full skyhook in uh, Rainbow Mars. Right. I and now it's his turn. Jerry, what's anyway, it like for you? Can... Jerry, what's it like for you writing, collaborating? Is it is it the same thing? Just it's just nice to get together with everyone and have a chat about your fun and your ideas, or do, do, do you need someone, Larry, to kind of help you almost? Well, I write pretty good stuff. They were paying me <laughs> quite a lot of money to write my bite columns by the time and until that finally went away. But um, I. Tony, I got into this racket to make money out of it, and I looked around to see who was writing stuff that I could improve but wasn't making much money out of it and came up with Larry Niven. His score wasn't very good when I met him. Uh, He was making plenty of money, but that was because of choosing his (laughs) great-grandparents. 
<laughs> if, if Paul Anderson had lived close enough, Jerry would have been collaborating with Paul. Yeah, Paul and I would have worked together if he'd lived closer, or if the electronic age had been earlier so that it had been easier to exchange manuscripts. Because I, I, Paul yeah. had certain commercial defects in his writing. Paul was a great writer. Paul was one of the greatest of all of us, but he had no sense of how to make a living at it. He just told stories. And um, me, I wanted to make a living at this. Uh, it was that simple. I wanted to make some money. I got four kids to get through college, for heaven's sake. So, so Jerry, do you think that's your kind of, I'm not saying one only asset, but do you think that's it? You know what I mean? You can write the stories and everything, but the kind of focus on to get this published, to get as, as much like finance coming Tony, in? I, I was an operations research man in the aerospace business, and that, in a sense, is what I still do. I have the ability to look at a whole bunch of things and for a short period of time kind of master a whole bunch of fields all at once long enough to be able to do something with it. Then I forget about it afterwards. But I can do that, and I take a lot of Larry has 8 million ideas. I can pull pieces out of them and make a story out of it that somebody's going to want to read. Uh, I add a few of my own here and there. <laughs> Yeah, the the plotting is generally Jerry's when we work together, and often. But he Larry writes better than I do. He writes better than Greg does. He writes better than almost anybody except Paul I've ever known. Uh, but uh, Larry is interested in the ideas, not the story, in most respects, and the characters. Yeah, I, I do get interested in what the characters are are doing. Uh, to, to continue their lives in the face of whatever I've thrown at them. Yes, they are. However, his characters are almost always minimalist. Yeah. They, either that or they're really outrageous. He, he doesn't have people in between those. Um, yeah, it, if, if, if the character is interesting, he's got to be able to show it. So, yes, they, they turn a little weird. Six foot four albino who uses his toes to light his cigarettes. Uh, or Harry the mailman. Yes. <laughs> Harry was very good. Well done. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so I was going to say, when then, Jerry, when did you first get together and thought, you know, and actually I'm, on, I'm talking about physically do the writing together. Has it happened over the years where you've kind of, it's like a married couple. You've worked together, and some things work, some things don't. Or has it just clicked? Well, I don't know. I tracked him down at a lossless meeting and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And the result was Moten God's Eye, which is still selling pretty well. Mostly, my collaborators have tracked me down. Uh, for instance, the latest, uh, uh, Matthew Harrington. Uh, wrote several stories for the Manxin War series, got my attention that way, and then it, and then we started emailing each other. And uh, at one point, he said, uh, "Love to collaborate with you. Need the money." So I sent him a story I'd, I'd given up on, stalled on, and he ran with that. And the result, uh, the result has already gotten two starred reviews: one in Kirkus, and one in. Uh, in Publishers Weekly. Its title is uh, Stand By, I'm Blocking. <laughs> <laughs>
Goliath Stone. The title is Goliath Stone. Larry, what was the, the, the kind of... Is it always now you're going to be co- collaborating, or do you kind of... Do you still like the kind Greg, of... Greg, I don't know if you know it, but you've just... You're, you're about to look at your mail, and I can see everything you're doing, so I think you might not want to do that. Uh, yeah, I, I knew. I just uh, got a blip saying that uh, okay. something... Okay, Tony, you I'd... probably want to make Greg not be the presenter so he can this. do his email without showing it uh, yes, to us. I want, um... No, no I, I was just checking to be sure it was functioning, that's all. It's downloading something. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to make us pre- me presenter. Just um, it, you might, Larry. I'm I'm worried about Larry because we might um, go off. And I just want right. He might have a live kazan in there for all you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I swear I do not. <laughs> so, Greg, what's it like working with with Larry? Then you know because this bo- you know we're talking about ball of heaven. Just actually. Get together now and, you know, you kind of sit over, like, see a breakfast table and think and thrash out some ideas? Or is it all done, you know, you, you talk on the telephone or? We've well, we done do that it both a lot. Ways. Uh, not, not a lot of being together because we live an hour and a half away, but we talk on the phone a lot. And when we were doing the book signing tour for Bowl of Heaven, we got a chance to talk over a for over a week and invented a whole lot of the ideas that are in the sequel ship star. Yeah. We, we have managed to get together, but it's not easy. Yeah. When Larry and I I were doing lots of books, we used to go on field trips, um, go out like with Lucifer's hammer. We I'm sorry for footfall. We went out to death Valley and spent a week out there in, bad motels and one place they wouldn't let Larry in because he hadn't brought a necktie, which I thought was funny in the middle of Death Valley. But, uh, <laughs> that was funny, but mostly in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why spend all the time in Death Valley anyway? The novel's not set there. Uh, pieces of it are and uh, some significant scenes are. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I reread it a few months ago. Uh, yeah. It holds up very well. That's uh, footfall. Remember, remember the dog yeah. man wound up in Death Valley. Yeah, the dog man the, wound up in Death Valley. Along with the uh, the oh, the guy right. who wanted to save the the earth and yes. was watching Death Valley be turned into a sea. Yes, the ecologist yes. who turns out to be fairly significant towards the end of it. Then we spent some time in Bellingham, Washington, which is not a place you would normally want to spend a lot of time. Because, again, the climax of the book is set there. But the yeah, point is that we, we were able to work together in a lot of places uh, for, by doing by taking those. Larry used to say that they feel like a real writer. We're going off on a research <laughs> damn, trip. Damn right, especially the trip to, to Chaco Canyon. Yeah, we we went to Chaco Canyon to to uh, research Burning Tower, and stopped at various places on the way, uh, including the uh, the uh, petrified forest. Yes, and Meteor Crater. Uh, yeah, we we just stopped at Meteor Crater, except we'd already seen it each yeah. of us at yeah. some other time. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jerry, uh, you were any, on... Jerry, you case. were on... I'll just... Jerry, you were on Leo Laporte's show and you were talking about your kind of the writing and the collaborating and everything like that. And then you kind of popped up and said you actually didn't enjoy the writing the actual physical writing process. Is that, surely that can't be right? I don't like to write. <laughs> Greg, do you like to write? Oh, yeah, sure. You do? You like writing? I like to have written. I like it when it's finished, but I, I, like, I, I, I like it if a day goes well. I like the end of it, but I can't say that I enjoy sitting down in a room all by myself with nobody else around and pounding on that dang keyboard. Oh, I, I do. I love it when it's working. Yeah, when it's collaborators working. notice I like writing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not working, I do something else. I mean, that's why I've always had a day job. Sure. Well, yeah. Right. But you see, I don't. Yes, I got a television set. Well, you had one. You left it at Pepperdine. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm not complaining. I mean, I'm. You know, I've had. What six bestsellers? So I, I can hardly complain. It is, and I was probably the highest paid science columnist in the country for a long time. Yeah. So I'm not That's complaining. Good, hi, Marilyn. If I didn't like writing, I wouldn't do it. Cameras there. If you'd like to be on. Uh, my wife just wandered into the into my room. <laughs> I guess, Greg, what, what I have to say is that I like writing sometimes, but I don't like to have to do it four hours every day. 
Yeah, I don't mind that much writing. Sometimes I, I'll write 10 hours a day. Yeah, uh, I know. And sometimes I used to, you know, I wrote Birth of Fire in one week flat. Larry will remember that. I went to a I poker do. game at his house one night. And I remember I the poker game it. just fine. Yeah. The yeah, only time I, was, I can remember Jerry losing consistently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a little tired, but uh, I made it up shortly thereafter. So, but no, I, I just there are a lot of things I like to do, but better than I do writing. But doesn't mean it. You still have to do it. You have to think that real life is more interesting than writing. Or you'll have nothing to write about. Yeah, yeah. For instance, I love hiking up the hill with Larry and talking about writing. Yes. I, I can't think of anything I enjoy more. Well, oh, I can. Yes, I can too. <laughs> yes, I can too. <laughs> so, Jer Jerry, does that often happen where you see you and Larry get up and you can get outside and go for walks? Used to be two, three times a week, not lately, but then I'm getting old. Are you still into walking? Well, yeah. So. Yeah. My dog has become somewhat lame, and so, and since she likes to go with us, that has cut down on the strenuousness of our walking, which probably has affected my health negatively, so maybe we ought to get back into it again. Well, listen, yes. I've got, I've got three dogs here. Taller. You can have one of them. <laughs> Beg your pardon, Greg? And the, hill keep, the hills keep getting taller. The hills keep <laughs> getting taller and the trails get getting steeper. Yes, I've noticed that. It's uh, uh -huh. uh, They all yeah. go out and grade those things until they, they're they're, they're, they're 45-degree angle. Yeah. <laughs> That's There's why a road the behind my neighbor's house, and I hike that occasionally with friends. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's... It doesn't get steeper. I'm, I don't have that illusion, but uh, I do have to stop for breath from time to time. Yeah. My well, I go up in summer to the High Sierras. Yeah. I stay there well, for two to three months. And that's much more invigorating hiking because you're at 8,000 feet. Yeah, well, when we first got started, I used to make Niven come with me on Boy Scout hikes, and we'd take the kids up into the High Sierras for a 50, 60-mile hike at a time when there was no such thing as a cell phone. So, 50-mile uh, mm -hmm. hike, seven days, one day of rest in the middle. Yeah. And I came out of one of those with uh, bursitis in my left knee. Yep, and, and the bursitis. Stick that the Boy Scouts cut for me that had turned into a J shape. <laughs> yeah. From from all my weight huh. leaning on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's good. You, you it's important to stay keep exercising. I, I swim every other day and I do a lot of hiking. Yeah. Yeah, I and need I to swim go every back day to more too. of it. Yeah. At least in the summer. Yeah. In the winter I give it give it up. Yeah. I swim in the ocean and I I'd still body surf. Must be expensive heating the ocean. <laughs> the last time I swam in the ocean, I damn near broke my neck. Uh, there was a wave that dropped me straight into the soil. Yeah, I broke my spine surfing and my left shoulder. Uh, you're a more athletic guy than I am. Either yeah, that's a broken bones. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got bones I broke twice. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but I started Larry, having to reuse the old, older bones. <laughs> Larry, you must understand the University of California offers a much better medical plan than you can afford. Uh-huh. Yes, because I'm yeah. paying for it myself. Yes, yes, yes. There is that. Thank you, taxpayer. <laughs> Jerry, how You're Jerry, welcome. how are you, how are you holding up? Are you are you fitting well yourself? I'm all right. I you know, I'm eighty years old and it slows you down. You seem quite, you know, actually every time I've seen you on, on the kind of on the shows and things like that, you seem remarkably sprite. Do you know and I'm sitting down, you know. I don't know. <laughs> but you you told us, you know, you kinda of, you, you you were taking your, because you're lucky enough to be kind of or talking to her today, you were, could, have, could have been taking your wife out to church and things like that. And I'm just wondering how often, you know, are you out kind of most days and active, totally active? Or do you kind of, are you in that little cubby hole of yours there most of the time? No. Yeah. I have no answer to that. <laughs> right then. Jerry then. You mentioned Charles, Charlie Sheffield, and he had kind of, I think it was like a, a, didn't he die of like a brain tumor or something? Now, I heard that you had one, and you were treated with laser. Was that right? I got brain cancer just after Charlie did. Charlie died six months later, and I'm still here. I and Robert you, Forward is dead of a brain and tumor. And Robert Forward got brain cancer not very long before I did, and he, he was dead in six months. It seems um, to be ende- endemic, if I, I got the right word. I endemic. was lucky enough that the the symptoms of the dang fool thing were partly blood work. They found it. Kaiser does routine blood work, and they found it. And partly, I have degenerate arthritis in one hip, and it really is degenerate arthritis. So I started getting all kinds of pains in my neck and shoulders, and I thought that was just more arthritis. But when they did the MRIs, they said, no, it ain't, so there's something else wrong. And then they looked at the inside of my head, and there was a lump about the size of a golf ball that was causing all these artificial pains. And uh, you don't really want a medical history, do you? The the neurology, the neurosurgeon, who was is a pretty well-known guy, uh, turns out to be a big fan of mine. He'd read all my. I went in there, and he wanted he wanted me to sign his book when I came <laughs> I came to see him, which I thought, well, that's a good sign. But he said yeah. he wouldn't operate on that thing for anything. He said that's a uh, that would be a, a quality of life decision. So I said, all right, so what do we do? And he said, there's only one thing we can do, and that's x-rays. And uh, so for a month, I went down to the Kaiser Clinic down on Sunset, and they burned holes in my head for about six weeks. And it turned out to be 50,000 rads of hard x-ray radiation, which Greg will appreciate as a fair amount. And when it was finished, I had no lump in my head and no sense of balance. Yeah. Striking. So I carry a cane, but it's not like, because I'm frail. I, hmm? I like my doctors to be fans. Yes. Uh, I tend to hand a book to a doctor before he operates on me. Yes. Yes. 
Every time I go to a new one at Kaiser, I always take him a book. <laughs> yes. Larry, you, you, exactly. you were mentioned as well. You're going in for it. Is it eye surgery in a couple of days' time? Uh, yeah. What's today, the 20th? On the, on the 24th, next Wednesday, they'll be operating on my, uh, on my left eye. Right. Well, I've already had a cataract replacement and in the right eye, so I'm I'm not terribly worried. It's going to be a nuisance, though, and it's going to interrupt my writing a little. Jerry, would you- uh, Jerry, would you, he has a big question. Let's get back to science fiction then. Living or dead, who is the greatest science fiction writer in your eyes? I don't know. <laughs> right now, it's Niven and Benford, I guess. <laughs> Goody. <laughs> I bet you're glad he said that. Sure. Uh, I, remember being, be living I remember being delighted when Arthur Clark, Arthur Clark on a radio show one morning uh, visiting America. The, some, the, the, the guy asked Arthur, uh, who's your favorite science fiction writer? And he said, Larry Niven. And then that evening at a party that Jerry was throwing for, for Arthur Clark, Arthur had to, uh, uh, Arthur found himself apologizing to Jerry for saying that. Uh, I didn't mind because I told him I agreed with him. I was huge. That was an party. interesting party. Niven was throwing his own party and he left his party to come to mine. So, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't spend long, but I did it. I uh, that was back in the days when small computers were new, and the only people who had them were well. You're looking at the three of them, the three people. Yeah. The the people who wrote science fiction on computers started with me, and then me and Nevin, and then Benford found out, and he got one just like ours too. And then did Frank you, Herbert decided he wanted to get on it. So Frank Herbert, because he had plenty of money, he hired an engineer to design him a better one than we did. And I think he died writing on a typewriter because once you give an engineer all the money he wants to design something perfect, you get great designs, but you never get any hardware. Jerry, you know, you mentioned there that Larry was the probably second person to write science fiction on a computer. It must have been a bit of a... You must have had to teach him how to go about it, did you? He certainly did. <laughs> certainly did. Yeah. I used to get telephone calls in the middle of the night. How do I save this? And <laughs> I think we might have uh, um... telephone calls in the middle of the night was was pretty much our lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember I get a call not very late, maybe maybe uh, an hour before midnight, from Jerry saying. I've got this scene in Lucifer's Hammer. Uh, I need a scene in Lucifer's Hammer. Yeah. Did I just disconnect this? No, no you're all right. It's you're, Greg. Don't touch a thing. Stop. <laughs> Do nothing. Okay, but Greg just disappeared. Greg from my just screen. disappeared, but that isn't you. That's something Greg did. <laughs> don't you? Okay. Yes, Larry. Don't you touch anything? You're you're doing fine there. Greg looks. He must have. He must have went off there, um, offline, but. Okay, we're writing Lucifer's Hammer. Jerry calls near midnight and he says, uh, I need a scene to show how horrible things are, are outside of the uh, stronghold. Uh, I've, I've got the, uh, 
the astronauts down, but I don't know what to do with them. Uh, think of something that show, that will show how terrible it is that there are corpses in all directions. And I said I'd, I'd do that, and I hung up, and about two in the morning it hit me. I call him up. I said, if they aren't paying any attention to the corpses, how do I show that? And he, and I said, I'm going to show them a dead kangaroo. And I did that. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, the astronauts, of course, had not been there during the collapse. They'd still been in space. And they were horrified by all the human corpses, but the the people who'd been on the ground all the time had been through it for weeks. They weren't. But something unusual, a dead kangaroo is a, is still something to stop and look at. It made mm -hmm. for a great scene. You, you know, when you were kind of doing this, working together, you know, and like I say, phoning, phoning each other at, at silly hours, you know, 12 o'clock at night, 2 o'clock in the morning. Is that just yeah. part, would, would that happen to, you know, is that just part of the course? That's, you know, when you're working, when you're doing a collaboration. It is traditionally. For writers, it is traditionally part of the course that you're going to be writing at three in the morning and getting your best ideas. And if you've got small children in the house, you're going to write at night for sure, because when else would you? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I Unless think I've gotten out of that style myself yeah. because of age. Yeah, same here. I don't do that much anymore. My wife likes me to come to bed at night, but... Um, <laughs> In the um, when when the children were growing up, you do your best writing after they've gone to bed and before you do. It's the only mm -hmm. quiet time in the house, isn't it? So I wouldn't know myself. Yeah, no. Jerry, do you still write then? Are you still writing? I know you do your kind of your post on your on your website, you know, for different articles and everything like that. But do you still dabble a little bit in fiction? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Does it get any Larry easier? Larry and I are still working on a book. Right. Hmm. I'm, I'm, well, can you ex tell a little bit about that or not? Or is it a bit hush hush? Now let's let's wait until we've that we've teased people enough about this book. Let's wait until we've got it before we go anywhere with it. Good. And what? Let's not talk about the book then, but the work and relationship. Are you still? You know, like that, are you still very close together? Or have you changed changed over the years? The working relationship had has come down to hiking, and we haven't done that in a while. Yeah, need to get back to it. Yeah. Uh, the dog getting cancer yeah. of, the, of the left leg. Cancer of the left front, front leg, I think. Right, uh, front has, leg. Has yes. slowed us down. Yeah. Yeah, she can't go up the hill, so we don't, and that's probably that's not good for our health, actually. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, there, Greg, just... you're going to be able to hike after the cataract operation, Larry? I would think so. Uh, the doctor seems to think I'll be able to drive after the cataract operation by a day. Good. If good. if he's if he's right, uh, I probably shouldn't. Get go to go as far as your house for a week. All we'll right. See. So about a week after after your operation, let's get back to it. Yeah. There's plenty of places to go around here, including partway up the hill up to the flat, for instance. So. Yeah. yeah. 
Just, you know, when you're going out on your walks, just, just ever argue over technical things? Always, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> particularly, uh, particularly novels, but also uh, politics, uh, state of the teaching profession, uh, anything that comes to mind. Yeah. Jerry's got better lungs than I do, so I spend a lot of time listening. And uh, and there's something that occurs to me. I, I, I feel free to interrupt. Yes. <laughs> Argue is probably not the exact word. Nevin is very good at finding a hole in an argument. And he's also very good at not saying much and then saying something that changes the whole direction of the conversation. So... Yeah. Meanwhile, I grew up in the radio business. Excuse me a second. I'm sorry. Larry, your, your turn. Larry, is it, you know, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm dropping like flies here. There. Is it, are you quite easy to kind of admit you're wrong in an, in an argument? Oh, sure. At least I believe I'm <laughs> capable of admitting I'm wrong in an argument as soon as it becomes apparent. Yeah, but so uh, you would you'll stick yeah, to your I'm guns. Yeah, I'm eager to learn. I'm saying you you'll stick uh, to your guns and kind of <laughs> fight your cause. <laughs> I, I I can't come up with the details, but Jerry was lecturing me on uh, uh, on po ancient politics at one point, and uh, he came up with a couple of examples of why I was wrong about something, and I and he said, "Want more?" And I said, yeah, tell me more. I'm eager, eager to learn. And he said, that's all I've got. He's <laughs> just laughing. Yeah. That was my wife. I have about 15 minutes right, that's before right. I have to go. That's okay. Uh, just a couple of questions, and then we'll get some questions from if anyone wants to ask a question there. Now, unfortunately, we've still lost Greg. I, I still can't see him coming back into the fool there. Yeah, looking well, at me. Greg may have got bored with us. Yeah, no, we never, never. Him talk enough. If anybody wants to ask these fine gentlemen a question, just if you have a look on your GoToWeb panel, there is a little hand icon. Now, if you click that hand icon, you can actually, I'll know that you want to ask a question. I can kind of get the, your voice in there, or we can even get the webcam in and get you saying hello to, to everybody there. Um, just my final question then, you know, because what my kind of heroes as well has been like the English science fiction writers. We're talking about, say, John Brunner and Michael Moorcock. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on the English across the pond. What do you think are our science fiction writers? Jerry. Uh, okay. I'm sorry, I missed your question. I was trying to figure out how something worked here. <laughs> I'm just I, um, I quite well. Go on, Larry. You um, answer the question. Now, do, you, do you like Michael Moorcock, Brunner, the UK science fiction? Every writer? so often, I have to read a Michael Moorcock, and it's it's like a guilty it's like a, like a guilty pleasure. Uh, he's he's not educating me. I'm not not learning anything that's going to help me with any any part of my life. But uh, but it's an adventure. It's going to be an adventure. It's always going to be interesting, right? Uh, on the other hand, not Mark, not Michael Moorcock, uh, Brian Aldous. Uh, I I was stuck on a plane one day, one one full day, 
uh, a charter flight back from Amsterdam to New York uh, with just one science fiction book I'd been able to find. And it was Report on Probability A by Brian Aldiss. And I was ready to kick my way through the wall before I gave up on that one. Nothing was going to happen. I got to, got to about page 38. Nothing was ever going to happen in this book. Uh, that's just one example. I was a John Brunner fan till the, till the day he died and well beyond. Mm -hmm. it was, it, I think he died in a, a Scottish science fiction convention, if I remember. Yeah, he died about, about it's as if he'd been granted a wish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Died as died as guest of honor at a science fiction world con. Yes. Wow. The Scottish <laughs> I want to go that way. <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, it I can think, be arranged. <laughs> I think Greg's come come back in then. I'll just yeah, make, I know you, Jer. I don't want to challenge you on this. I'm going to make Greg a presenter there. I think Greg's back in there now. So somebody we'll, is. Yes. What we'll do is we'll get oh, something some. Just happened. We'll get some. Greg will come back in a second. What I'm going to do is we'll get some questions off people there, and we'll let you, fine gentlemen, go away. So Greg will be come back in a second. Make sure my laptop's still recording. One, give us ten seconds. Hello. We huh. seem to have lost our host, Larry, and it's dead air time. All right, I know your theory about dead air time. It's it's anathema. You should cover it with something. And we don't great. permit dead air time. I grew up in the radio business uh, from the time I was five years old, so... And then everybody... Right then, let's get some questions mm. asked. Greg, are you there? Can you hear her? Oh, one moment, I'll just... Well, we see you, Greg, but we don't hear you. Hello, Do Greg. You hear... Do you hear us? Can't... Um... <laughs> well, we don't hear sign you. Language. We're getting sign language, Greg. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to bring, because like I say, I know Jerry's getting a little bit um, anxious for time there. Check so what the I'm going plug to do, on, your, on your microphone. Oh, I had a good check. <laughs> I'm going to bring in Edmund, Bo Edmund, Ed, sir, just uh, if you want to ask a question. Ed, are you there, Squire? Hello, Ed? Yeah. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. I can, we can. now. Right. It, well, where you go, Ed? Absolutely. No, this is a, an, an honor to speak to you three gentlemen. Um, I've been reading you for many years, more than I care to admit. And uh, the, uh, the question I had was um, actually related to uh, the, your, I guess is primarily, I think, Jerry and Larry, your support of uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative. And uh, I've been fascinated in uh, reading about that, that uh, some people have talked about it being almost a, as much a stealth way to uh, get space travel out of NASA's hands and uh, into more private hands, and uh, especially with what's going on recently with Elon Musk and SpaceX and uh, you know the commercial side of space finally starting to get going some. Um, just uh, what your thoughts on that were and the, the current state of things. You seem to be up to speed on most of that. Well... Uh, the purpose of the Strategic Defense Initiative was to get the Soviet Union 26,000 
uh, nuclear warheads pointed at somebody other than us. Uh, the, the point of the strategic defense in the initiative was to bankrupt Russia, which it did. Having done that, it turns out that maybe it would be a good idea if, uh, if the, the people in North Korea didn't have anything they could hit us with. It would be sort of nice if we could shoot it down before it got to, to Guam or Hawaii or Los Angeles. So... I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I suppose there was some Machiavellian intent to do more than that, but the purpose for which we wrote the papers for President Reagan was to come up with a defense strategy for the United States of America at a time when there was this thing called the Cold War. I know everybody has forgotten that there is such a one, but uh, actually you're talking to the people who pretty well would be the brothers Benford and uh, and, and yeah. Edward Teller and a whole bunch of other people were involved in the technical part of it. and. The, the science fiction writers were terribly important to this. Uh, we could translate between businessmen, lawyers, uh, yeah. ro rocket okay. scientists. I'm Jerry is summoned, I'm afraid. His okay. wife's calling again. <laughs> yeah. Bye, dear. Greg, we still can't. Um, you still haven't got your microphone switched on properly. If you try unplugging it and plugging it back in. Oh, well, if I could uh, just grab one, more, I could just grab one more moment of your time, um, Mr. Niven. I wanted to uh, correct a disservice I did to you, unbeknownst to you, many years ago. I was a student at the Thatcher School, and uh, one day the uh, the, the debate, debate team learned that the Cape team was canceling a match with us because uh, of a uh, talk by their noted alumni, Larry Niven, and uh, I'm afraid that I. Um, did uh, support team spirit and school solidarity in uh, poo-pooing the idea that they should listen to you rather than come debate us. And uh, I'm glad that I've finally gotten the chance to actually hear you now. <laughs> okay, think nothing of it. <laughs> That's I got my say. Greg, can you, yeah. Greg, I, oh, we can, yeah. you. can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you there now, Greg. Okay. Somehow the, the, the unmute didn't work, and now it does. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, let me say something about the SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative. At the time, and for a long time thereafter, I was actually working with the Central Intelligence Agency in a separate role, but I got folded into an effort to try to tip the balance of power in the Politburo. And for that reason, I cultivated and got an invitation to go to the Soviet Union at the uh, behest of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, and I spent a month there carrying out a number of intelligence uh, forays and spoke to m many of the major players, such as Sagdeyev and Galeyev and others, um, who were on Gorb in Gorbachev's faction. And the intent of the whole agenda there was to, as an assist to the Reagan administration, to tilt the balance of power in the Politburo against the army and in favor of Gorbachev. And that was my explicit mission, as Jerry and Larry know. Um, and it worked, largely. Uh, it, it, by the way, this was in the November of 1984, tellingly enough. Um, 
And uh, that's what happened only a few months later. And I was involved with some other things I can't describe. But it was it was the intent of the State Department under Reagan, uh, with, with a fair amount of help from Cheney, as a matter of fact, to uh, try to shift the Soviet Union so that Reagan would have someone to talk to because it was impossible to talk to the army faction in the Politburo and then drop off. And the other guys, the octogenarian who's, uh, who was in charge of the situation then. And that's actually, I think was the crucial pivot that made the change in the Soviet Union possible. And sure enough, in seven years, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. Mm-hmm. That. Balance becomes more delicate every time I listen to somebody like you. Yes, I have got to go, people. My wife has come to pick me up to take me to breakfast. So thank you, everybody, and goodbye. (laughs) You take good care, Jerry. Jerry. Have a nice breakfast, Jerry. It must be nice. It must be nice. (laughs) If anybody else wants to have a little question, I've saved one more. Ed, thank you so much for that. I'm just going to mute you back up there. We've got Tim on the line. I'm sounding like a DJ Tim on the line. Tim, are you there, Squire? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we certainly can, Tim. We can hear you. Yes, fire away. Thanks, gents. Um, One of my favourite books is uh, Fallen Angels by Larry, um, Jerry and uh, Michael Flynn. And it seems um, always in my thoughts these days about the whole political situation and climate change. And just wondering your thoughts on that, Larry, and... However, anything's changed about that. Uh, The facts do seem to be measuring up nicely alongside our speculations. Uh, Climate change. Climate, look, uh, I don't necessarily think that the world is getting warmer, but climate change is is a fact of life. Climate change, as caused by human beings, seems less likely. But plainly, things are happening, and um, I have worked for over 15 years on what I think will become inevitably necessary, and that's geoengineering. Uh, Because uh, we don't have any, and the emission of CO2 into the atmosphere has always been above the UN panel, the IPCC estimate and prediction. And uh, I think this situation is going to go on for many more decades. Um, I, you know, Sherry Rowland, who won the Nobel Prize for predicting the depletion of the ozone layer by CFCs, uh, and I were having lunch uh, before, well before he died, and I, I said to Sherry, what do you think the concentration of CO2 will be before we get it to stop rising? And at, at the moment, at that time, it was about 380. Now it's above 390. And Sherry looked at me and he said, I think it'll have to reach 1,000. I hope, I hope that's pessimistic because uh, he just didn't see anything that was going to turn around fossil fuel emissions. There certainly doesn't seem to be much will for anyone to get the ball rolling to do anything significant. Well, you're, you've got to remember that fossil fuel is the second largest industry in the world. The first is agriculture. So turning around an industry that's several trillion dollars a year, uh, actually, no, several tens of trillions of dollars a year, uh, it is, is extremely difficult. And it's hard to persuade people not to use something 
which uh, is good for them and bad in the long run for the environment. Yeah, I suppose so. There is hope in that in just exactly what we're doing. Uh, think of how think of how much uh, oil and gasoline are saved by the fact that three of us didn't come to meet you, Tony, in England. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then That's multiply it right. by the number of people who aren't moving because they've got Skype. Too true. Exactly. Too. But, but, of course, next year we will see you, Tony, at the World SF Convention in London. Well, you know, I've just actually been talking to my wife about that as well, so you, you never know. I might um, get myself down there because it's not that far from, from me. Now, if anybody, Tim, well, big question. Thank you so much for answering that. I'll just going to mute Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Now you're a star. Thank you so much, Tim. If anybody else wants to ask Larry and Greg a question there, can we talk about, while I've got you two then, you know, a ball of heaven, because... Greg, you were telling me, now I didn't kind of know this because I got the audiobook version, but haven't the publishers not on the book cover told them that there was going to be a second volume? Yes, uh, that was a big mistake and that made not by us, but by the publisher. Uh, it, all it required was a simple notice that this was volume one of a two-volume novel. Uh, and the reason we issued it in two volumes was to get more time to work on it, but also because it would have ended up being a really big, fat book. Uh, and that was unfortunate. But on the other hand, the sequel, Shipstar, will be out in January, and then it's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we kept all promises. Right. Uh, and just out of curiosity, what, what's it like with you, Greg? What's it like to work with Larry then? Do, are you sometimes kind of – I'm not saying starstruck because it's Larry Niven because now you're obviously friends. But was he at the beginning a little bit intimidating or not? No, I, I met Larry first in 1965, and we've known each other longer than many people have been alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the point is, I wanted to do it because it was fun. And I, I was intimidated I, in spots. You were? <laughs> yeah, I was. You didn't know it, I presume, but yes, uh, you, were, you were coming up with ideas faster than, than I could quite acclimate myself, acclimate, acclimate myself to them. Well, well uh, at least during the first book, during Shipstar, right. I caught up. Yes, uh, the trick is that the Bowl of Heaven is one step beyond Ringworld in the sense that it's an even larger construction, but it's also a dynamic machine that is traveling somewhere, and yes. that means it requires enormous amounts of management because it's inherently unstable, and. Uh, th- that gives you the key to the whole book is that, uh, as Larry has remarked, uh, the real world, uh, in, in the first book anyway, is, is deserted. So it's a, it's a platform for our foreground characters, uh, humans and aliens, to interact. But Bowl of Heaven, you're visiting a gigantic artifact that is completely populated and run by those you meet and think run it, but uh, you could be wrong. How did you, you know, what I'm interested in finding out then as well, is how did you come up with the, the, the bowl concept? Did you actually, you know, physically get together, you know, like over the breakfast table and say, you know, that's a, that would be quite a good... Greg uh, had a sketch and I fiddled with it. And we kept fiddling until it, uh, until it made sense. Uh, yeah. We started with, uh, with a picture of a half of a Dyson sphere with a sun at the, uh, at, at the center uh, and by the time we got through with it, of course, uh, we're getting gravity through rotation. So you wind up 
with a ring world that's got a, a wok for a lid on one side. And the sun out here uh, with the wok uh, pouring sunlight from, from, from mirrors back onto one spot on the sun so that you get a flare uh, for a rocket. Uh, anyway, we, we, uh, we kept working until we got it right. That's, and then ran with it. That's the question, Greg. Has it got to be right? Has it got to be worked out? Or can you not just fudge it and see it and do like a, a Bradbury style? You know, it's just, it's a big ball. It works. Has it Bradbury got, it got to style? <laughs> I've spent no. 40, 30 or 40 <laughs> years uh, warning people not to try to write like Ray Bradbury. It's, yes. it's just, it right. just looks too easy and it's just too difficult. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, the important thing for me, because I'm a professional physicist, a professor of physics at the University of California at Irvine, was to actually know a lot more about the artifact, the bowl, than ever gets into the novel. So I did a whole lot of calculations, and it helped that I had a long research career working on the jets that come from black holes and also from accreting systems around stars. So I, I knew a lot of plasma physics and I put all that in to the novel, uh, though not the calculations. Oh, I had to leave the, uh, I had to leave the, uh, the, the plasma physics to Greg. Uh, I don't understand plasma physics. It looks like we've lost. Um, it looks like we've lost Greg again. There, <laughs> Larry, it's just we're down to me and you there now. We're kind of we're dropping like flies here. You know, with ball of, with ball of heaven, then. Larry, is, and you see your kind of, your, your sequel's coming on, I'm just going to mute Greg just to make sure we can't hear that um, feedback there from him. Is, is it an enjoy, because you is work with, yep, are you there, Greg? Yeah, I'm here, the mic suddenly cut off for some reason. Right, no, you, your, um, your, um, your picture's frozen. I, I didn't touch a thing, it all just went on and off. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about, I don't understand this. We were talking about Ball of Heaven and, Greg, and you were you were mentioning things. It's just what I'm interested in is is this kind of you know how you you get together and how you kind of it has to be right. You know what I mean? It it can't not. Sure, work. it has to be right. You know, we're science fiction writers. But here, when we want to write fantasy, we uh, we take a break, but, and then it yeah. doesn't have to be right all the time. But some of the time, but the, there has to be consistency. There must be sometimes, though, when you've you've got to kind of fudge the, the the kind of concept because we don't know how certain things work. You know, because in Blowal of Heaven, you've got the state of sleep. Now you've got these people waking up who are groggy, who are kind of you know things that you're trying to predict how they're waking up. So we don't know how people will survive after like a state of sleep for like a, how many years. So surely you must have make it up a little bit. <laughs> well, I actually looked up a bunch of the work that was done on a, a, a heat ex, a sleeping experiments, and I was helped by a friend of mine, Joe Miller, who was at uh, University of Southern California at the time, who's an expert on sleep, and he told me a lot of things about this, about attempts to make people sleep longer, or how to suppress sleep, and use of sulfur dioxide, things like this, uh, and I folded all that in. It is, um, uh, uh, but also in, in, in the real world, the natural world, we have animals that hibernate and we know how they wake up and mm-hmm. what it's like. And it's a slow process. I mean, you know, it's fairly slow for us to wake up on a Sunday morning and get up in time to do a webinar. 
<laughs> just for example. Just yeah, just to, just to get that one. Well, listen, gentlemen, it's but, been but, it's been fantastic. Yeah, you notice you. that we use we use coffee a whole lot. We refer to that in the book a lot. <laughs> yes, it is so. I'm a, a big coffee fan as well. There, kind of grind my own beans yeah. and everything there. So, and I see. Yes. Me too. Yes, good. That's why. Mm-hmm. So, is that what you were drinking there, Greg? A, a coffee when you were? Yes, that was. Yes, it's coffee. Uh, it could have been wine later, but it's coffee right now. Well, it's. Yeah, um, I always drink at least six or eight cup, cups of coffee, usually decaffeinated. Is I think Larry's just drinking neat vodka there as well. By the look of it. Nah, this is straight water. <laughs> oh, that's Oops, water. There we are. Is really. Is dangerous. I've seen people drown in that stuff. <laughs> you risk it every morning. Yeah, that's true. I've never seen anybody drown in whiskey, for example, or beer. There's a, there's a thought. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a guy in Shakespeare drowned in a butt of Malmsey, which is oh, wine. Oh, that's right. Well, yes, that's right. What play is that? Yeah, I've no forgotten. That's Richard the Third, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think it is Richard the Third. That's right. Yeah. So if anybody else wants to ask a question, I'll ask one more question. If there's anybody else, put your hand up and we'll ask away. And if not, I will, we'll, we'll say goodbye to these fine gentlemen. I'll, I'll ask Jerry. I mean, this is both for both of you, but I'll ask uh, Jerry, Jerry. Jerry's gone. Larry first. Larry, what are you like as a person? Do you know what I mean? Never mind science fiction, never mind anything like that. What are you like as a, just a normal human being? Are you kind of vulnerable? Are you obnoxious, thoughtful, kind, considerate? I'm thoughtful, kind, and considerate. Uh, everybody loves me. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you ever get bad temper? I mean, because I've got a bit of a nasty streak in me. My good wife will tell us I've got like this kind of temper that just shoots straight up and then it comes straight back down. But, I haven't had a temper tantrum in years. Oh, wow. Hmm. I tried to develop a philosophical bent. <laughs> Greg, what, what what are you like then? Well, uh, of course, I'm really handsome and charming and, and universally loved, but I'm also a liar. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're going to have to take what you get, really. Uh, I, um, Larry grew up in California. I grew up in southern Alabama. I have adapted to this foreign land. Uh, and I've lived, by the way, a great deal of time in Europe, including being a fellow at Cambridge. Uh, and uh, I've tried to see a lot of the world and learn from it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that one should suffer fools gladly, does it? Surely. Well, that's what that's it's funny, Greg. Uh, that's what I was probably thinking with you. I think out of all the three years, you probably might not stand for any kind of nonsense by anybody. You know what I mean? You'd be probably the first to say, wait a minute, can I just, you know, and go down that route. So am I right there or not? Well, all of us. We're all trained in the sciences in one way or the other, mathematics, particularly for Larry. And uh, we have certain standards of evidence. So when I talk to people about economics, I know a fair amount about it. And uh, and I hold them to a standard of real evidence. Uh, I'm, uh, for example, Keynesian, Keynesian economics seems to me to be being disproved again and again and again and, uh, through my lifetime. Um, the other thing that uh, motivates me is that... I think civilization is getting into really serious trouble. Climate change is one of the things, but resources and a lot of other things are are getting stretched. And I think that the scientific worldview and the view of the future available in science fiction is just about the only optimistic thing I see in the world today. I don't think the world 
is getting better at managing its problems. And thinking about the future uh, really is now essential because it's coming at us so fast. In this regard, um, my brother and I are putting on a symposium at uh, the University of California at San Diego next month, May 21 and 22, exactly a month from today, um, called Starship Century, which is looking at the development of interplanetary resources and the uses of space as a big technical area in which we can we can make a real improvement for the human species, mostly through by expanding horizons and getting resources. Um, but the goal of which might well be, uh, with, we argue, uh, to be able to launch a starship, a, a ship that can explore the nearby stars, maybe unmanned, maybe robotic, but do it within a century based on the building of the infrastructure behind it. And um, the whole book opens up with the quotation that from by Thomas Jefferson that I did track down, in which he explicitly said in eight, the year eighteen twelve that it would take a thousand years to fully open up the American continent all the way to the Pacific. Jefferson was a very smart guy, but he was off by an order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the same thing is true of the solar system. So. Are you saying we have to we have to explore? It's the only way to go. Well, we'd better because that's what we're really good at. Try to imagine uh, the world if you sitting in Europe still didn't know about the new world. Imagine that humanity still was so ignorant and so unable to use the perspectives and the resources of a whole planet. How well off do you think we'd be? Imagine terraforming Earth without knowing anything about how to do it on another planet. That's a good thing. Exactly. Think of the mistakes that could be made mm-hmm. uh, that you could get away with if you were terraforming Mars. That's, a, that's yeah. a good point, yes. Or Europa. Yeah. Uh, the ability to do experiments on an ever larger scale gives you greater power over the world, which, after all, was the agenda of another Englishman, Francis Bacon, with the New Atlantis over 500 years ago, or just, no, no, roughly 500 years ago. So that agenda, which is the agenda of the modern age, is still going on. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though we're all going to live in a nice park for for all the rest of the future history of humanity. Um, (laughs) We're the only variant on the chimpanzee that actually managed to get out of Africa. You know, they're from the point of view of a, a really good book by Jared Diamond, The Third Chimpanzee, uh, there's the ordinary chimp, there's the bonobo chimp, and there's us. Now, we have evolved further. We separated from the chimps about six million years ago genetically. But the striking thing about us is that we got out of Africa and the others never did. We were made to go over the horizon. That's our trump card. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You mentioned as well, Greg, you know, when we got together and had a little practice, and you were mentioned as well, you would, you would attend an, a, a seminar where... You, I think was Neil Stevenson there as well, and you were talking. Has that been yet? Where you were talking about the, the big things you were wanting to invent right. and make? And well, yes, the the, the this this uh, symposium at UC San Diego a month from now will have Neil and several other people talking about exactly those things. Neil's big pet idea is a tower twenty kilometers high which would have great technological advantages and teaches a whole lot. And he maintains it can be built. Uh, and there's a story in the book, Starship Century, that, that will be out in August by Neil about doing exactly that. I mean, his agenda is that humanity ought to think about big things again because we have big problems. And the, the, the technologies of the last 30, 40 years have all been essentially small, like this little laptop I'm talking to you on. We've miniaturized and, and, and made great gains that way, but now maybe it's the time to think big again. It's, Although miniaturization is great for NASA. Yes. For exploring the solar system, making the probes smaller and smaller is wonderful. Yeah. But the solar system is still big. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Greg, is when when is this? This is a, like a month today. Is it this this um, seminar? Yes, it's in San Diego at the University of California. And then there, there will be a, like a book to that kind of coincides with this particular talk. Like all, everyone's talks are going in a book. Well, n no, actually, uh, the, the, almost everyone who's speaking is already in the book. The book's already done. There will be a special edition issued at the symposium, and then the book becomes commercially available elsewhere in August. But the, the, the symposium is actually to commemorate the beginning of the book, and we have people like Freeman Dyson and Paul Davies and uh, uh, Neil Stevenson, writers uh, such as Steve Baxter. Uh, we have Ian Crawford from London. Um, quite a... Quite a nice gallery of people talking about the future. Oh, and we have space entrepreneurs, too. People from SpaceX and other companies talking about their plans for the future. You know, it's, it's only a few years away when we'll have the first orbiting hotel. Remember 2001? <laughs> Was it? Was it? Well, quite we're easy? getting there a little late. So still getting there. Was we're getting it, there a little late. Was it quite yeah. easy to get these people on board? Then, Greg, was it? Actually, it was. Uh, uh, Greg's they got a lot very, of prestige in this field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it, it helps to have a lot of friends, and we solicited contributions from a wide range of people and got quite a few. Um, the, the, our only problem, by the way, was getting contributions from women because we asked a lot of women, but they had other things to do. This is 
one of the things about the science fiction field I learned from Robert Silverberg is that it's very hard to get women to contribute to anthologies, typically. Uh, they typically don't want to write to a certain theme, things like that. I found that in my career of editing anthologies. Um, I, I don't quite know why that's true. But there will be a lot of people. There are going to be hundreds of people at the symposium. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll kind of keep in touch as well and we'll kind of get some record of it and get some yeah. kind of put, put some stuff out. That would be lovely, you know. All, all of the speeches in the symposium will be put online. Mm -hmm. They won't be directly streamed, I think, but they will put on, be put online by UC San Diego. No, that will be lovely. That will be fantastic. And, uh, and people can also order the special edition of the book if they want to get it in May instead of August. Uh, you, they can order it through Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore in San Diego. You just go online and tell them you want them to get you a copy, and they can. So, gentlemen, it's been it's hard to describe it. It's been an honor to have you sitting there, Larry Niven, Greg Benford, and, you know, Jerry as well. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Larry, I know it's been a bit chewy for you trying to get, you know, technically, you know, getting up to speed and everything like that, but it's been lovely yeah. having you here. Honestly, Sorry about you, that. No, not at all. Listen, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time and Greg as well you know a, a fantastic star it's, it's nice it's always a little a little gimpy on the internet my, my my connection is wireless and maybe that that's the problem although it hasn't failed much before but you know this is still relative to what was true 30 even 20 years ago this is a miracle oh yes I mean this is what uh, you know especially now like and well described well described in Analog Magazine over the decades. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's right. So as, as I've just actually mentioned on the show as well, didn't has, has Stanley Schmidt um, stepped down from editor of Analog Magazine? Yes, uh -huh, I thought he, thought he had as well, yes. Never, never won a Hugo Award then, is that right as well? Well, been nominated, I don't know about how many years. Um, you know, I think he... Didn't although I I can't remember this last year if he won. Um, I've just plain forgotten. No, uh, it's it's not it slipped my mind as well. But listen, I'll let you gentlemen get away. Larry, thank you okay. so much, Greg. Okay. Been a pleasure, Tony. Yes, take good care, Onsi, and good luck with the, the second. What's the the new book called? The Ball of Heaven. The second. Volume called? The second Ship one is Star. called Ship Star. Right, I'll certainly look out because I'm listening it's to the, the audio Star version. Ship. Yeah. So, By the way, Tony, if you want to do, uh, say, one of these shows with me and my brother when the book comes out in August, we can do that. Too. Yes, no, that would be that would be fun, Greg. That would be lovely as well. That would be um, a dream. I, I will. T you can guarantee I will turn up in your email. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> right. Sure. Take good care, then, gentlemen. Okay. Right. Thank Goodbye, you very much. Tony. And everybody, thank you for, for joining us. It's been a pleasure and an honor to kind of speak to these kind of these guys here. So I'll just like to say now, good night from me and thank you so much. Take good care. Thank you, Goodbye, everyone. Tony. Thank you. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that little look back at that interview as well. Now if you if you'd listen to the beginning of it, it said it was a webinar and it was, you know, the part of like a, a video and I, I stripped the audio. There was no video. It didn't work. For some reason, I didn't record it. Yo, oh, I know, I know. Just it's one of them things, and you just got to kind of 
at least I've got the audio, and the audio to some extent is just as important. You know, we can kind of sit and listen, and you build it all up in your in your mind. These three guys sitting there, you know. But like I said, for some reason, the audio, the, the, the video didn't record. I, I don't know if I didn't press the button, but I always have the, the audio recording in the background. So that was, you know, kept safe, but that wasn't to be the, the video. So it was video on the day. Everybody seen, you know, we had like one of these webinars. I used to do these webinars where I used to get the greats in. I'll play some more of them on Echoes, Starship Echoes in the future. So I hope you enjoyed that a little... But it wasn't actually a little, you know, like I say, they were happy enough to talk and I was happy enough to just keep that record button going, you know what I mean? So join us next week when we'll dip back into the Starship Sova Echoes, or just Starship Echoes. Until then. Oral Delights, show number 100. I am. It was a little harsh. 200. Crime City Central. Featuring Tales to Terror. Protecting Project Pulp. And the all new. Show 500.